Let's jump into Peppa's world of play. Look for spring flowers, hunt for muddy puddles, and bravely explore exciting places with Peppa play sets. Peppa Pig, inspiring kid confidence. The Knot is where you'll find vendors for every wedding. Floral to fawn over, cakes you almost don't want to cut. Oh, it looks so good. DJs to drop it to. Venues worthy of your grid. Photographers that make every hour golden hour. Really, vendors for any vibe. With the help of fresh reviews and a few useful filters, you can find your vendors faster than you can say, I do. The Knot Vendor Marketplace. Find vendors for every wedding at thenot.com slash audio. In this episode, Gemma Castle, CFO at Cult Wines talks about the importance of building highly empowered teams. She describes the exciting opportunities for technology in the wine industry and emphasizes why remaining open-minded is critical for any successful CFO. Hi, I'm Ross and this is the CFO Playbook, where each week you'll get insights from world-class financial leaders to help you grow your company, yourself, and face the challenges required of today's CFO. Before we jump into the interview, we want to invite you, our listeners, to head to our show notes to find a link to our listener survey. We want to learn about how to make the CFO playbook even better. As a thank you, you'll have the opportunity to win your choice of an iPad or a Samsung Galaxy Tab S7. We would love your feedback. Gemma, thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you very much for inviting me. I'm looking forward to it. So Gemma, you're CFO at Cult Wines and you've had many different roles across different industries as a finance professional and then of course more latterly as a finance leader. Can you talk a little bit about that professional journey of yours and how you ended up where you are today? I wouldn't say that I set out to embark uh, in a career in the finance world. I'd be honest, all my work experience was orientated around becoming a sports journalist because I quite liked the idea of being paid to watch something that I enjoyed on a Saturday (laughs) afternoon. But um, I left. So I I, um, went and did some work experience with the BBC, worked for the Sunday Telegraph and then went to university and left university with two job offers, one on the graduate programme for The Times in London and one with a medium sized accounting firm. And I'll be quite honest, one was offering considerably more money than the other one. (laughs) And but also having done my degree in politics and international relations, um, I think I was becoming slightly more orientated to a career in finance as opposed to one in journalism and actually thought, well, perhaps I, I can still enjoy watching sport without actually making a career out of it. So so that's what I did. So I joined a medium-sized accounting firm. I did my audit training for, for three years. I was really lucky, you know, and there's pros and cons about working for a big four. But with the firm that I, I joined, a lovely practice called Wildeco in uh, northwest London, um, I was very, very fortunate. And I was afforded the opportunity to audit a really diverse portfolio of, of clients, mm-hmm. whereas sometimes in larger organisations, you get slightly pigeonholed into either industry or just auditing one section of a company. So quite early on in my career there, 
I realized that having done my training and got my ACA qualification, I wanted to jump ship and I moved to industry. So that's how it all began. And then became a financial accountant for a UK subsidiary of a a large US company. Mm -hmm. But after that, really made my background in SMEs and a wide variety of SMEs, um, an office design and interior fit out company, then went to work for the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, which was probably, well, it was it was probably my career error that everybody has on their CV. I lasted six months, wasn't really fit for me, wasn't quite what I'd envisaged it to be. And then I joined an AIM-listed company as a group financial controller, worked my way up to be finance director there before then yeah, embarking at a company called Yotel, SME owned by Family Office, but also founded by the entrepreneur Simon Woodruff behind Yo Sushi. And then I moved into the cinema industry and then I, I moved to Cult Wines, which I'm quite interested in wine. So I don't profess to have anywhere near the knowledge of most of my colleagues. But when everybody sort of found out that I was um, going to work for um, wine company. I think they thought it was a match made in heaven. I think people actually do have this um, very misguided notion that I sit at my desk quaffing very expensive wine as I work, but I can safely say that that that's not what happens. Well, I I don't imagine that would be great, in particular in finance, if half the team was drunk. No. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I'm not going to lie, though. We we do sometimes get to taste some very lovely wine, so that's an added added bonus of uh, of my job. I think it would be very disappointing for the team if that didn't happen, at least sometimes. Exactly. People do worry when they invite me for dinner, though, because I think they just um, think that I'm used to drinking very expensive wines and, and what they purchase is, is totally an inferior and inadequate. But sadly, I, I can't actually necessarily afford to to purchase the wines that that, that, that we sell. So, 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 yeah. And I presume in that industry in particular, there's a reason that fine wines are such a, a, a great investment asset. Uh, and it's because they are very rare and very expensive. Well, they are. And also, I think, you know, in against the backdrop of what we're seeing at the moment with the sort of slight plummet in cryptocurrency mm-hmm. and with all the volatility that's been occurring, sort of maybe in more traditional mainstream investments because of the pandemic, fine wines are very good component to an individual's wider investment um, portfolio because they suffer significantly less volatility, there's less whiplash effect. So for example, I think at the outset of the pandemic, end of December 2019 through to sort of the spring of 2020, I think the FTSE um, plummeted to just under 21%. But in the same time, the LiveX 100, which is the fine wine pricing guide, mm-hmm. only dropped 0.6% at its lowest um, lowest point. And actually, if you go all the way back to, which perhaps more salient now, go back to 2008 mm-hmm. and the sort of global financial crisis then. And it's, again, quite relevant because Cult Wines was established in August 07. That actually, if you look at the year-ended December 08, again, the LiveX market only dropped sort of a, a percent in comparison mm-hmm. to something like the S&P 500, which dropped nearly 40%. So they are a, a really good, a really good investment for, for sort of stability and stable returns. I find that fascinating because and I've read similar trends where the lots of categories of, of extreme luxury goods like that you might find like very expensive Swiss watches or even brands like Hermes, they were they're somehow recession proof. Artwork. Yeah. Or, or of course artwork as well. They're almost recession proof. And and actually randomly just at the weekend I started speaking to an artist in a coffee shop 
and she was exhibiting and she was saying that uh, talking with other artists that actually the art that was below a thousand pounds in this case that the, a lot of people were reining in that spend and they seemed to be going a much slower than it would normally but above a thousand pounds it was almost unaffected by this cost of living crisis and i was just wondering fine wines follows a similar trend why do you think that is that there's it's such a resilient asset class I think um, it definitely does. It does follow um, that that trend completely. And I think it's because particularly there's deemed to have that longevity. And because of mm-hmm. that longevity, there is a degree of stability. And also in terms of the UK, it's obviously different. And, and Colt Wines is a global company. Wine is deemed to be a wasting asset. So actually there's mm-hmm. no capital gains tax on um, any returns that you, you make. So I think with that in mind, and as it's sort of, you know, talking to my previous point that it's ancillary, to maybe sort of someone's mainstream portfolio. I think it's sort of a diversification of anybody's risk, to be honest. And Mm. I think you're only going to get those returns above um, a certain price point. And so speaking to that point, anything above a thousand in terms of artwork or equivalent in wine, I think is still a really attractive proposition to an investor. A fascinating space because you, you get into a place where for many people who are wine drinkers, because there's so many wine drinkers, but very few could discern the difference between the, the finest of wines and perhaps like something that would be like like mid-range in their local supermarket. Um, again, when it comes to like trying to discern the quality of the wine, how do you and, and, it, and the team at Cult Wines approach that to ensure that it is the right quality within the investment? There's a couple of um, answers to that question. So first off, we have a highly intellectual team um, who sit on our investment committee. Mm-hmm. Um, so they do extensive research analysis of vintages, price points. And so when we're constructing portfolios for clients, mm-hmm. we've done mm-hmm. so much in-depth knowledge. We also have signed an unprecedented licensing um, agreement with Wine Searcher, who I think a, an FT journalist described the Google of the wine industry. And on our new Coltex platform, our data science team have done a huge amount of research to manipulate the raw data that Wine Searcher have provided to us. So we're able then to make that much more usable to investors. You know, they've got extensive data analytics, over 100,000 live market to over 200 million um, pounds worth of the world's most prestigious investment grade wine. So we have a lot of in-house specialism whether it's our investment team in the research, it's our data science team, and then also obviously our relationship managers who engage with our clients. You mentioned there are a couple of teams for the data science team. Of course, you've got your investment experts as well. And many other companies that are perhaps outside of the, like the investment uh, industry and financial services, a lot of those teams would be part of finance and finance would be the one that was like driving a lot of that analysis and so forth. How is that set up at Cult Wines? The finance team is actually quite separate to that. So it's quite operationally financed on a day-to-day basis with my team. But obviously, you know, I'm very keen to look at the finance department and view other departments within a company as customers. So we work um, very closely with the investment team, with our sales team. And then obviously, as I mentioned, you know, on a transactional side of things, we obviously do that as well. And so then if you're doing, say, like forecasting for the business, long range planning, how does that work in partnership? Because a huge part of what you, the the analysis, of course, that will be done will be with the investment team, but then you're responsible for, for going out there, raising new funds, working with investors, reporting back on that. 
basically, uh, we've just recently changed our year end. So we sit down a couple of months prior to the year end. Mm-hmm. We look at, we work with the sales team and investment team as to sort of discussing the the bigger macro climate as 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 well. And then they have an idea, particularly on sort of a shorter term of quarterly campaigns that they would will do. For example, in September of last year, our investment team did a, a lot of research, and champagnes were offering reasonably good returns. Mm-hmm. So they will profile out a particular campaign. But also we have two cyclical campaigns. So at this early start of uh, calendar year, we have Empremer Burgundy. And then actually we're we're in the mists of Empremer Bordeaux at the moment. And so, you know, you get very early signs of the quantity of those vintages. Mm-hmm. So we're able then to sort of plan out what our like sales capacity will be. And mm-hmm. then on the base of that, we know how much we need to buy. And then when I sort of get involved, because obviously we purchase a lot from European suppliers, mm-hmm. Then that's when I get involved and, and look at our FX hedging policy. So it is really a collaborative yeah. um, effort. And I have quarterly forecasting meetings with the investment director and our revenue director to make sure that we're all on the same page if the sales targets have been reforecast and the, the impact that we then have on our, our, our buying capacity. And mm-hmm. we work very closely with the, the buying team as well. So it's you know all very well having um, the, these amazing sales strategies, but our buying team of the people that you know work with the the producers the negotiations to be able to 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 get the best prices for us and then presumably as well that that means for the type of team that you're building because of how collaborative it is they have to rather than just be you know excellent at their job or fantastic analysts or accountants they have to be pretty strong at partnering across all these different departments they do. And that's something um, that I'm really keen to foster because um, very early on in my career, um, I was reading a report and um, was talking to uh, the HR director at uh, the company I was working for at mm-hmm. the time. And he said that in HR and finance, we always had a thankless task because if you interview people internally, IT always right at the bottom, then it's finance and then it's HR. So that's always sort of slightly stuck with me. And hence my comment about about how I try and view, and particularly obviously when now I'm a leader of the department, that I view other departments as my customers. Mm-hmm. So I would hope that we're quite, we're probably not up there as glamorous as sort of sales and marketing, but I would hope to think that we don't quite rank uh, near, near the bottom. <laughs> so it is important that when I recruit, it's obviously not just about the technical skills, the core competencies, that communication is is key as, as well, because I'd also like to think gone are the days where um, another thing from very early on in my career that someone said to me was when I was training, one of my tutors said to me that you go to a party and you should pretend to be a deep sea diver because if you say you're an accountant, everybody walks away from you. So I'd also like to think that, that the people that I hire have the communication and the personality as, as well to kind of remove that myth that we're all boring people in, in suits. But the, like as uh, as funny as that is, I'd imagine that could sometimes be tough because, and I don't know the the empirical data on it, but I'd imagine like like just from even speaking with CFOs and and knowing working with various finance teams in my career, your finance can sometimes be a place for a more introverted, analytical type personality. Um, so how do you then balance that up? Those people who might be excellent at their job, but slightly more introverted, so therefore need more coaching and development to, to be able to collaborate effectively. 
and I agree with that. I think it is all about coaching and mentoring. And I think I missed out a little bit. Um, I didn't really feel that I had a particular mentor or um, when in any of my jobs. So I'm very keen now to promote not just the technical development, but also some of the softer skills. So communication and, and building people's confidence as well. And it's really making sure that an individual feels that they can own their department and when I mean own a department is really understand how important they, they are in a bigger mm-hmm. organisation. So, for example, um, with my accounts receivable team, they are as just as integral um, to the client as that salesperson because they'll be liaising with that client, sending them the invoice, perhaps having to ask them to pay that invoice as well. And, you know, at the end of the day, if you don't get money into the business, then, you know, you have a fundamental problem. So it, it's really trying to empower um, my team from, you know, I've got a very junior person in my team to, to my number two or what have you, and additional training or just offering them su- support. I think as the sort of the head of finance, I'd like to think that my door is always open to them. Mm-hmm. And if they have any concerns, you know, I'm not into hierarchy. So if they want to ask me a question, I wouldn't expect them to go via my financial controller mm-hmm. to come to me. And I think I learned very early age that it, honestly, it's just best to ask questions um, and to ask for the support. So because of that, you know, like I said, my door's always open and, you know, I'm keen to encourage and make sure that my team, every one of my team, see how important and, and where they fit into the finance team. But for example, AR needs to collect the money in from clients because otherwise the sales team don't get their commissions. So they're all part of a a journey. It's not just getting the money in. So again, it's collaborating. That salesperson needs the AR person because without the AR person, they might not get all of the commissions that they're entitled to. So it is really a collaborative effort. and, And I'm very keen for, for people not to just see themselves as a little bit of an island, but know exactly where they fit. I think it's often very good for motivation if someone is not going to get paid, if they don't collaborate very effectively with their partner. It tends to work. It does. It's amazing, that, isn't it? How, <laughs> how effective that that can be. <laughs> and so then when you're thinking of those profiles, of course, right now, and maybe this is changing a little bit and we can touch on that in a bit, but with the market sentiment changing, but recently for the past 12 months, at least if not longer, it's been really challenging to, to hire great people and to keep your best people. And leader after leader, CFO after CFO mentions this. How have you tackled that challenge? Uh, we have seen that trend, particularly in the finance department as well. We have had some people leave and turnover has increased. And I think the course of the pandemic has really taught us that we don't necessarily all have to be in the office. We can work efficiently at home. And so it's promoting that uh, flexibility, mm-hmm. moving towards some more hybrid working. Because for me as well, it's sort of untapping that latent talent. So there might have been someone at home who wanted to work in finance or any other field, really, but because of maybe, you know, some some social, personal constraints, childcare or what have you, they feel that they couldn't do nine to five, nine to six in an office. But I think by moving it and just promoting flexibility, you really do untap some absolute latent talent. And I don't need to have my full finance team in the office five days um, a a week. I think any stigma around the fact that you, you work less efficiently at home has proved otherwise, to be honest, during the pandemic. I mean, sort of April um, to August 2020, Colt Wines returned in that five months um, a million pounds EBITDA, which was unprecedented. So, And that isn't just to do with the conditions that we discussed about the stability Mm -hmm. of, of fine wines. 
that's due to the the effort that employees put in during that that time as 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 as, as well. So I think it's offering that flexibility. It's supporting in terms of whether they've got technical studies that they want to 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 do. It's do you have to work you know five days a week? No, not necessarily. You know, and it's some of the other kind of like going back to wine. We will sponsor employees to do their wine educational spirit trust courses as, as, as well. So I think, you know, it's looking at more of being a pastoral employer as well. And it's thinking about people's mental health. So I think it, there's quite a few things that are all encompassing, mm-hmm. really, to be able to a attract good talent, but also keep hold of, of, of what you've got within the business at the moment. It's really interesting to hear that because, of course, another aspect of that, and you've touched on several pieces of is about where you hire people. So in many cases, I know Cult Wines, like you're based in the UK, but you'll have probably some some teams in certain locations. But in the US, what, what we've heard from many different CFOs is that they might have pre-pandemic had quite a centralised approach to hiring. Maybe they were based yep. in Seattle or uh, in the Bay Area and they wanted to hire most of their people there because typically finance is a core function. It's very headquarters based. Yeah. And many, many of our guests and companies have said that actually they've started um, through the the rise of distributed working, not just remote, but distributed working. They can hire all across yeah. the US. And one of the things that, that we'd heard that I found fascinating was that that really helped with the search for diversities because many of those CFOs worked in the technology industry and that's that's renowned for being particularly poor with diversity in America, specifically with hiring black people yeah. and women. Um, that's, that's still a huge challenge, but they'd been able to do that because they were based all across the country. And I was wondering if you had seen any similar trends with, like, as you, one, if you had started to hire in other locations, and then secondly, if there was yeah. any benefit around diversity. I think there's absolutely huge benefit about diversity. And actually, we are seeing a trend now. So like you said, um, finance is a core function. And so it's always been located in the UK when we have subsidiaries in Hong Kong, Singapore, China. Last year, we opened in North America with offices in um, New York and Toronto as well. And actually, starting next week, I have my first finance hire based in Hong Kong. It's a lady. So absolutely seeing that trend. I mean, it's hugely beneficial because it's improving the diversity. Though that being said, um, up until July of last year, I had an all-female finance team, which was quite unique. Uh, sadly, a couple of them moved on and I have two male hires. But the lady I'm hiring, she's obviously female. And interesting, your technology point is as well. We are looking at recruiting um, people outside of the, the UK. Mm-hmm. So uh, at the moment, the tech and product team is heavily based in the UK. Mm-hmm. That being said, at the start of this year, recruited our first product manager within the tech mm-hmm. team as well. And also within our sales environment, we have actually eight female relationships managers, most of whom are actually based in Hong Kong and Singapore and and China, interestingly enough, which you would have felt perhaps would be harder for them to get into because of the lack of diversity. So, you know, I think at Cult Wines, because of the things that I've touched upon, thinking about mental health, thinking about hybrid working, recognising that in order to attract um, the, the best talent, you have to be flexible. I think Cult Wines is doing very well with the mm-hmm. diversity within the business. And I think being in the wine industry is, as well, it sort of hasn't been very female biased, but, you know, you've got 
two heads of Chateau now, Veronique Saunders, who heads up Chateau Bay. You've got Stephanie Dubois-Raval, who heads up Chateau Angelus. And then you have Allegra Antonori in, in Italy as well. So I think that's breaking down some of the barriers for women to think that perhaps the wine industry is slightly more male orientated. So, so yeah, I think one of the things that I'm quite proud of at Cult Wines is the fact that we do consider diversity. I think we are very adaptable to people's working environments and working situations. Situations. And actually being CFO, my remit is not just finance. I look after admin and HR as well. So in October, we hired our first HR manager. Um, so that's also given us an extra dimension, you know, and breaking down some of the barriers to entry for women or, or anybody to enter the, the wine industry or, or, or cult wines. I think your point about the like the introduction of diversity is, is a really interesting one because whilst of course fine wines is very very far removed from the world of say software and technology, it does point to some of those like historical structural imbalances that hopefully now are starting to improve towards equality. I think so. I mean, you say that we're far removed, but actually the wine industry is embracing technology, mm. and that is. And, and that technological advancement as, as well is allowing new customer engagement, but also allowing us to recruit talent globally for some of the core functions mm-hmm. as, as, as well. So I think you're right. But for example, uh, at the start of 2021, we recruited our marketing director. And just prior to a couple of months from that, we had hired our head of product. Mm-hmm. And so now we have a team of 14 people in in the marketing team and 13 people across tech product data science as well and some of those who who are not based in the UK as well so technology has allowed us to to do that and with the advent of our cult wines platform the, the digital trading platform mm-hmm. you know cult wines is doing a lot in that technology space to, to sort of open up the wine industry to more people and in the summer of last year uh, we worked with Chateau Angelus mm-hmm. who I just mentioned and um we did our first NFT collaboration. So we're doing a lot of work with applied blockchain. So I think because of the pandemic, we've had to, people are moving away from traditional channels of procurement and having to go online. So I think the wine industry is going to have to adapt accordingly. And there's a lot of technological innovation occurring. Mm. I think I'm biased, obviously being driven by cult wines, but in the wine industry as a whole. But I guess actually, to your point, Cult Wines is, is doing exactly that. It's blending together or bringing technology to the fine wine industry and, and probably, what, as you mentioned, one of many players doing it, but doing that in a way where it can offer something fundamentally new. Yeah, and I think, you know, sort of going back to collaboration, it's um, our collaboration with Chateau Angelus. So we offered um, through OpenSea with a reserve price of 110000 a really unique opportunity for a barrel of the 2020 vintage EP on Premier with Chateau Angelus. It was a digital art piece which encaptured the emblematic symbol of the, the bells of Chateau Angelus, which features on all of the wine label. And so the person who then acquired that NFT has a barrel and very lucrative utility attached to that, can have it when it's ready to be bottled, bottled in any format that they might want. But then attached to that, there was some absolutely amazing, luxurious perks. There was a VIP experience during the harvest of 2021, 
personal wine tasting and pairing and cooking with, I think he was a two Michelin starred chef, Chef Andrea de Beaumard. Mm-hmm. There's a stay when with actually at the renowned Logie de Carden um, and a dinner with my CEO, Tom Gearing and, and Stephanie herself. And so I think it's a very, I mean, it's a very unique and it's a very brave thing for Chateau Angelus to do, which took to your point because of that, the, the, the history. But I think, well, um, I think it's a very good new brand building tool for Mm -hmm. them. It's a new form of customer engagement for them, which, you know, I'm not saying it'll be revolutionized overnight, but it could sort of dispense away with traditional wine mailing lists or wine clubs and and things like that. So I think there is across all stakeholders within the wine industry, I think that there's a general acknowledgement that technology is going to play a part in, in the future of the industry. And that's really interesting because, of course, you're speaking all about the distribution and the opportunities for like vineyards to be able to engage with customers directly, potentially changing those uh, those supply chains. What about the side that you mentioned where you talk, you spoke about blockchain, of course, and and blockchain and and one of the things that I read, of course, when in in looking into cult wines is that actually insuring against fraud and the validity of the investment class that you're offering is a huge thing, and I and I could completely get that. I guess that's the same in any uh, very like fine art or or fine produce type environment. So, is there a big opportunity with blockchain there to prove that? I think so. I mean, the NFT is coming direct from the winery. There's already a fundamental stamp of providence and authenticity mm. as well, but it will un- undoubtedly reduce any wine fraud. And we're also looking to get uh, wine chipped. So when it comes direct from the, the chateau, a wine bottle could be chipped as well. So it, you'll have total transparency of, of the journey of that wine down to a bottle because very conscious that there have been some quite high profile cases in the wine industry and artwork of counterfeit. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's prevalent in some areas of the world more than it, it is here. But I mean, I think there is a little bit of a question mark over the security of wine, but I think that's where technology will come in. And I think NFTs, applied blockchain will only reduce the risk and perhaps scepticism about investment in wine or artwork and and how susceptible it is to fraud. Do you see that as a barrier for some people to invest in things like fine wine as the the fear of fraud? A little bit. I think, again, um, it it depends where you are. I mean, um, the US is quite an embryonic market for us, although we've performed um, very well since we we started in Canada and and the US. But I think we are seeing in that area of the world that there is a little bit of suspicion. And I, I suppose it's heightened as well, because most of this wine is retained in a bonded warehouse and the owner of the wine will not actually ever see it um the bonded warehouse is in the in the UK mm. and so because it's not so tangible it's not in your physical possession i think there is a, a degree of skepticism and sort of trust with, within that industry and I, I think i can totally understand that um because if if you're based in the US and your wine's residing in a bonded warehouse in in the UK how do you know it's actually tangibly there? So I think it will definitely reduce any potential barriers around the security of, of wine going forward. And so clearly you as a company are are bringing like, well, and, and embracing all of these different technology opportunities and trying to see how that can, well, one, working directly with the vineyards, you can actually partner with them. And then secondly, engage with customers. But do you also, are you as proactive and as passionate about using technology within Cult Wines for, to improve the way that you operate beyond, of course, some of the collaboration tools that you've alluded to earlier on? 
Yeah. So obviously we've got Coltex, which is really opening up the wine market um, to an array of, of investors. But I mean, just our internal systems as, as well. We were up until a few years ago, our uh, sales platform was an access database system so which obviously is not sustainable so again the product and tech team have done such good work with making an online portal now so that obviously um, is an internal tool but it's also customer facing as well our technological systems are more joined up as as well so the sales platform now interfaces to our new finance uh, system we were running on sage we've now moved to a cloud-based sap solution Mm -hmm. business one so everything is talking um, to each each other and so that's just generating efficiencies in terms of getting real-time information speeding up reporting and also going back to the recruitment point allowing us to recruit outside of the sort of deemed to be head office of London for some of the core core functions is as well mm. so we're not just investing as you said in um, technology for um, our customers we obviously recognize the uh, presence of technology within the business. I mean, really something very basic is the fact that we now in the UK employ more people than we have desks for. So we've had to introduce a desk booking system. So even basic technology systems like that, otherwise everybody descend in the office and there's nowhere to sit. So everything done is is now geared. So I, I can do everything that I do at my desk in the office at home. And of course, for finance and for, and for your team in particular, that ERP system you alluded to is is a core part of, of what you will use to operate and and um, how you'll do things like financial reporting. So, so can you talk a little bit about that decision you made to move from Sage to SAP and into the cloud, as you said as well, and what drove that? It was really where the business was scaling, to be honest. Mm. Um, we were now, when I joined Colt Wines, we had a subsidiary in Hong Kong. And since I've joined We've opened in Singapore, we've opened in China, and we've opened in in the Americas as well. And, you know, the way the business was scaling, Sage was not going to support what we needed to do internally, but also what we needed to provide the customer as -hmm. as well. We need to to provide the customer with professional looking reports. They need to see how the value of their portfolio is progressing. And the internal systems that we did were not sophisticated um, Mm -hmm enough to to just keep up with how quickly our business was was scaling and 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 growing so it was really you know the decision wasn't i wouldn't say we were reactive to it but the business was just growing so quickly that the the current sort of at that time the current technology that we had in place just could not support what we wanted to do and you know to be the global um, leader in fine wine and with the advent of Colt X, which is really going to be a highly transactional business that is going to rely on real-time reporting, Mm -hmm. our finance software uh, was not capable of being able to deliver that at at all, really. That's really interesting. And and clearly that just ties back to the importance of, as you said, the real-time data and your product that you're offering to customers driving some of your internal uh, system choices. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I think it's all very well us having these great offerings, but if your internal systems can't support it, then it's it's not going to work. And so then touching on this, like, I mean, you mentioned it briefly, but like typically like that type of ERP implementation is a big endeavor. It requires a lot from finance in particular. You, of course, are leading finance, but as you said, also HR and so on. And and some of the other like uh, genie functions. So then how do you balance all of the demands on your time? 
I don't sleep very much. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think for me, I think it's all about having good support. Mm. I mean, my department success is not just down to me. You know, it's down to the people I employ. And if then they work well, then that's obviously a good reflection on me. And if they don't, then obviously I have to carry the can for that. So I think balancing the demands means having the right people in your team so you don't feel the need that you have to micromanage, um, that you feel perfectly secure that everybody's doing their job. So I I think that's really how I, I, and, and actually having this new person starting in the finance team in Asia is going to, to to make life so much more easier there because it means that my team in the UK aren't playing catch up in the morning by having to deal with any requests that have come in from Asia overnight. There's someone there that, that can deal with all of that. So I think it's really making sure that you've got the right team. You listen to your team because there's no point me hiring a good team if um, I then just say that we're doing exactly what um, I'm saying and, and not listening to the, their ideas. And it's making sure that we've got really good processes as as well and and also having the technology there too so I think that there's various things in play but I think for me allowing me Mm -hmm. to balance what I need to do it's making sure that the team is there and I can trust them to get on to do what they're doing and we have our weekly catch-ups our monthly catch-ups as as well but and, and yeah for me it's making sure that I listen to people's ideas so for example while I'm a big advocate of being able to do something that a a team member can do. So I need to know how to send an invoice out to a client. It might not be something that I do on my daily basis, but if there's ways that something like that can be streamlined or improved, then the person who I should be listening to are the people in the AR department. So I think it goes back to that point that I made earlier on is that I'm really not hierarchical at all. It's everybody's point of view in my team, no matter how senior you are, is valid. And I'm you know, willing to listen. So I think that's really, they're the key things, to be honest. It's great advice for anyone, of course, that's trying to bridge th- those many responsibilities like you are as well. Which touches on actually uh, perhaps one of the last questions that we'll cover today and as the interview is drawing to a close. We often like to ask our CFO guests, for anyone who's an aspiring CFO who would like to one day emulate your journey and be in that type of position, what advice would you have for them so that when the time comes, they could be successful in the role? It's really interesting. Before I give you my my serious answer, one of my interview questions um, is to someone, what's your dream job? And I get really disappointed when they say that they want to be a CFO because I'm like, oh, that's a really good ambition to have. But really, seriously, is it your dream job? Because my dream job is to manage Manchester United. But realistically, I know that's never going to happen. But you never know one day. But I always ask that question because, you know, I think going back to what we were saying about introvertedness within the finance mm. and opening communications, it just gives me a little idea of you know, what, what that person personality is like. But in all honesty, I think to get to be a CFO, I think you have to learn from your mistakes because you are going to make mistakes, but it's how you you then move on uh, from them. Again, as I've just alluded to, it, it's listening to people. You shouldn't profess that you've got all of the answers. And, you know, if someone else does have a good suggestion, don't be scared of acknowledging that person because I've been in a number of roles where, you know, some people have made some very good ideas and perhaps more senior people have taken credit for it. So it's all about giving credit where it's due. And I think it's just immersing yourself within the business that you work for and understanding what the demands and requirements of other departments are, to be honest. 
but also finding that balance as well as making sure that you have got a good team to support you. Fantastic advice. Gemma, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you very much for having me. One last thing. We want to learn from you, our listeners, to learn how we can make the CFO playbook even better. Head to our show notes to find a link to our listener survey. As a thank you, you'll have the opportunity to win your choice of an iPad or a Samsung Galaxy Tab S7. We would love your feedback. This show is brought to you by Soldo, the brighter way to manage business spending and expenses. With Soldo, you can control every expense, track spend in real time, automate financial reporting, and then use those insights to fuel growth. Learn more at soldo.com.